Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. At the end of each week, I am joined by a guest to help us distill and further examine what we heard in trial that previous week. Again this week, my guest is Abby Smith, who serves as Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Defense and Prisoner Advocacy Clinic at Georgetown University. Together we'll discuss the strategy and the effectiveness of the closing by Rittenhouse attorney Mark Richards. One program note. I conducted the interview with Abby via phone in a public outdoor area rather than by computer from my home studio, as is our norm, and so the sound quality is quite a bit lower than our usual standards. With that caveat mentioned, my conversation with Abby Smith is coming up right after the break. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now, my conversation with Georgetown law professor and criminal defense attorney, Abby Smith. Abby Smith, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Carrie. Good to talk to you. First, I want to apologize to our listeners. I'm at a remote location, and so I'm recording via telephone today, so you will hear some background noise. Abby, Mark Richards' closing argument was broken down into four basic parts. He began by laying out and critiquing the charges against his client, Kyle Rittenhouse. He then went through each of the witnesses, occasionally with a digression about the prosecutor's overreach or bad faith. And then the third part was taking the jury through a series of images and describing his narrative for what those images represent. And then finally, asking the jurors to look very carefully at the jury instructions regarding self-defense, arguing that if they found that the defendant was privileged by the law of self-defense, then all of the other lesser charges go away. What did you make of Mark Richards' closing argument overall? And then we can go through and break it down piece by piece. Overall, he did a solid job, if a bit meandering, in my opinion. He has a very approachable, kind of folksy style that I thought played well. I thought it was much longer than it needed to be, partly because of the organizational structure he chose. He didn't need to go through every single witness the way he did. He could have organized it more conceptually, consistent with the defense in the case. But overall, it was a solid closing. He did exactly what he needed to do to create reasonable doubt. And I think with regard to specific issues and arguments, I think he had the better argument, you know, against Binger. And the one theme throughout was a kind of steady rolling attack on the prosecutor for not really understanding the case, 
for not being able to adapt when things were different from what uh, Binger initially thought they were. This was conveyed both in tone, a kind of snide poking fun at Binger, and also in content, mentioning specific arguments where Binger just had it wrong. And I thought he did a good job with that in putting the case on Binger, kind of personally, as the representative of the state of Wisconsin. At the end of last week, we went through Richard's enumeration of all the charges and covered that. So I want to jump right into Richard's presenting a parade of images of the various witnesses in the case. Mm -hmm. I think perhaps the first really significant witness that he went after was Gage Grosskreutz. Let's talk a bit about his deconstruction and critique of the testimony of Grosskreutz. Okay, sure. He went after him. There's no question about it. He called him the state's star witness. He used that kind of reprise of 10 million reasons to lie. He used the video quite well to suggest that Grosskreutz posed a serious threat to Rittenhouse. He was the one armed person who was shot by Rittenhouse. And I thought he, you know, embraced the social media posting of Jacob Marshall as the truth and as reflecting, you know, what kind of cocksure Gage Grosskreutz might have said. You know, that's, he was bound to do that. That wasn't a surprise. He went hard at him. It was interesting because I thought Grosskreutz was a good witness. I thought he came across as likable on the stand. I don't think it mattered so much, although I think Binger could have done a better job rehabilitating him. didn't matter so much that he had a lawyer, you know, or that he was suing the city or that he was somewhat suspicious of police. I think a lot of people could sympathize with that. I just, I don't think Binger explained that well enough, and I think the defense took advantage of it and made Grosskreutz appear to be a more slippery character than he really was. I also think that, as we discussed, either he did not make himself available for prep or the prosecution did not request the opportunity to prep him, and so he fell into numerous traps during the cross-examination and, you know, basically handed Richards a series of admissions that he used very effectively, I think, during his closing. I agree. He used every point. It was a really good example of how you make use of points scored on cross-examination. He knew exactly the stuff he had gotten on cross, and he argued it effectively on closing to suggest reasonable doubt as to Rittenhouse's perception of imminent danger by Grosskreutz and others. I hold the prosecution responsible for his not very well-prepared testimony. I don't care if Grosskreutz was not the most cooperative person. I don't care if Grosskreutz was receiving advice by counsel. I hold the prosecution responsible. They should have talked to his lawyer. They should have said, look, we have some shared interest here. It's actually in Grosskreutz's interest to come across well in the criminal trial. It's also good practice should there be a civil proceeding of some sort involving testimony. It's their witness. And prosecutors every single day deal with uncooperative witnesses. Witnesses, witnesses who don't really want to be witnesses. That's the job of a prosecutor is to bring them in and prepare them. So I hold them responsible, not gross credits. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In the second part of our conversation, Abby and I continue our assessment of the strategy and effectiveness of Mark Richards' closing argument. The other witness that Richards really went after, and I thought it was a bit of a tell of what he felt was potentially the most damaging piece of evidence to his case, was James Armstrong, the video analyst. And the piece of video from the drone that seemed, according to the prosecution, to show that Rittenhouse raised his weapon at Joshua Zeminski and Kelly Zeminski, thereby provoking the entire chase by Rosenbaum. I thought it was a bit of a tell, but I also thought that Richards very effectively both attacked Armstrong and his methods and attacked the prosecution's narrative for what the video showed. I agree with you, Carrie. You know, he mocked Armstrong and mocked him well. He had a little phrase. I mean, I think these phrases are kind of corny, and I wouldn't be able to use them with a straight face, but he sort of took a page out of the O.J. Simpson defense. You must, you know, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. He had this line, hocus pocus, out of focus. Um, but, you know, maybe the jurors liked it. It was kind of in keeping with his folksy personality. He just belittled the testimony in some very important respects, too. I thought he focused well on whether Kyle Rittenhouse was shooting with his right hand or his left hand to suggest that the distortion was meaningful in the video, that whatever supposed enhancement there was, it was really a distortion and was inaccurate. I also thought that he used effectively the discrepancy in the witness testimony between the two detectives on the case. Martin Howard acknowledged during his testimony that Zeminski and Rosenbaum were ambushing Kyle Rittenhouse. Interamian later in the trial did not acknowledge that, and Richards ascribed that to the prosecution getting with the detectives after Howard's testimony to get them all on the same page. I thought he was very effective in using that testimony and using the conflict between the two detectives against the prosecution. I thought that was effective, too. He didn't spend a lot of time on it, and he talked about, you know, the various perspectives, but I thought he did what he needed to do to suggest who was telling the truth, the person whose testimony was consistent with the defense theory. And that's just a good thing to play with anyhow, no matter what any other officer said. There doesn't really need to be a discrepancy. When a defense lawyer can point to a police officer and say a police officer who absolutely has no dog in this fight, another phrase that Richards liked a lot, you know, could suggest that the Zeminskis were posing a threat and Rosenbaum was in cahoots with them and that it was going to be an ambush and that's a police officer who basically gives you that. That's all you need. You can frankly disregard the other cop's testimony because you've gotten what you need from the government's own witness. He also used the Kendiri brothers against the prosecution. I thought fairly effectively all of their reasons for trying to disavow inviting those men and at least one woman with rifles to defend their property set against the picture of one of the Kandiri brothers posing with all of the armed individuals. Yes. Well, they needed a picture is worth a thousand words. And that picture, I'm sure, was blown up and says it all. Come on. They were grateful. 
those brothers. The owners of the shop were grateful. No, I thought that was perfectly effective. I, I thought he made good use of video throughout, interwove it very nicely. The one last witness I want to talk about that he brought up and I thought was very effective, again, in taking the jury through his testimony was Kyle Rittenhouse himself. What did you make of Richard's presentation about Rittenhouse's testimony? So I was on the edge of my seat. I was really looking forward to that. I was a little surprised as a defense lawyer and somebody who teaches criminal defense trial advocacy that he waited as long as he did to talk about Kyle Rittenhouse's testimony, that he sort of put it kind of toward the end, but not the complete end. It was so it was sort of in the middle. You know, when you call your client, that's the show. And he had a lot of good stuff he could have used. I was sort of surprised the placement organizationally of the testimony. I thought he did a very good job, meanwhile, with what he said. He engaged in much more narrative than argument when he talked about Kyle Rittenhouse's testimony. Of course, he calls him Kyle. That's to humanize him and to underscore his youth. And he did a very good narrative job of kind of slapping down everything the prosecution had to say about Kyle. One thing in particular kind of stood out to me. He sort of created a bit of a straw man. Now, there was basis for this in what Binger said, but the straw man Richards created was that the state believed that Rittenhouse was a member of the militia or a member of some right-wing group and that he came there to cause trouble. And Richards made this be the prosecution's theory and the prosecution's case, not that you know, he came for whatever purpose, but in the back of his mind had already, you know, wanted to be famous and it posted on social media about wanting to be famous. You know, not that it was subliminal, but he sort of suggested to the jury, this is what the prosecution is saying. They're making this guy, this lifeguard, this kid with real ties to Kenosha. And Richards put himself in those ties. He said, look, I'm from far away. I'm from Racine. You know, it broke my heart about what was happening in Kenosha. And he says, you know, the prosecution is saying is that this guy came as part of some armed operation meaning to cause trouble. That isn't actually what Binger is saying, but Binger did suggest that in his opening. And the defense is hoisting him on his own petard of some of the stuff he said in the opening that he never backed off of. You know, I thought he humanized him well. I thought he said, come on there. He mentioned at every juncture that Kyle Rittenhouse was attempting to put his gun down and go seek the police or attempting to move away, but the crowd kept closing in on him. I mean, that, that was a narrative technique in kind of talking about what was happening from Rittenhouse's perspective. He also used time, the kind of urgency, the quickness of things as part of that narrative and conveying what Rittenhouse's testimony was. I mean, the truth is, Two minutes is a really long time. I'll be interested to see what the prosecution does in rebuttal. I'm hoping that whichever prosecutor gives a rebuttal, which I don't know at this juncture, I hope he takes his watch off, sets it to two minutes, and it's just silent in the courtroom so that the jury can experience what two minutes is. It's a very long period of time, plenty of time to deliberate plenty of time to make other judgments. That's the only rebuttal one could make because I think Richard did a really nice job of conveying how everything was happening all at once. The crowd was closing in. He didn't want to shoot, but he felt he had to with Rosenbaum. And then suddenly he's being attacked as if he's an active shooter. Richard did an excellent job of 
completely rebutting that suggestion. This was no active shooter. He did not go there wanting to shoot anybody. He would have. He could have. He had 30 live rounds. If he wanted to shoot up a crowd, he certainly would have. That is not what this young man was doing. I thought Richards had a very strong argument about that and just, you know, no pun intended, but blew a hole right in the middle of the active shooter thing. But here's the thing. Binger also... He set it up that way. He wasn't crisp enough in arguing, not that Kyle Rittenhouse was actually an active shooter wanting to shoot up a whole crowd, but that people in that crowd could have reasonably perceived him as such, and that that's what Anthony Huber could have reasonably perceived. But Richards, again, does a good job of kind of putting it on Binger, that, you know, Binger from the start, overcharged, oversold, doesn't know his case, doesn't know the guy, has got it all wrong. A few things on all of that, Abby. First of all, I think you're absolutely right. He used measurements, time, very effectively. I remember him pulling out the tape measure to show yes. the jury what four feet was, how close Joseph Rosenbaum was. And said, um, why? His, why? Why would he need to be so close? What do you suppose was in his mind? And what do you suppose Kyle was thinking? He, he also got in that Rosenbaum he had just come from jail, consistent with something that Rosenbaum had said, and not from a hospital, and that he certainly wasn't medicated, and that he was crazy. He got a lot of stuff in with no objection. Your reference to Anthony Huber and the perception that it might be an active shooter situation brings us to his guide through the video and photos of the case. Just to stay with Huber for a second, I thought he was very effective in pointing out the moments when Huber seemed to be a Rosenbaum and Zeminski ally. There were only a few of those instances, but I thought he was able to subliminally tell the jurors that this guy Anthony Huber was no saint. He was part of this crowd of rioters. He was not an innocent bystander. And similarly, as he progressed through the litany of photos and videos, whether it was the photos of burning cars the night before the shootings or the photo of Rittenhouse cleaning graffiti as if that was some sort of an alibi or some sort of pre-planned thing that he knew he was going to be charged with murder later in the day or the various photos of Rosenbaum pushing burning dumpsters, appearing to squirt accelerant on a burning dumpster, holding chains. He right. used all of that stuff right. to great effect, particularly on jurors who live in the town. Agreed. Two things. First, about the Kyle Rittenhouse and graffiti thing. I, I thought that was a particularly strong moment by the defense. Come on, here's a kid who, for no money, is helping to get of graffiti. I mean, that's just a great thing to say. This is the kid who had some grand plot. Um, and as to the dumpster fires and the arson and so on, I mean, that was a softball that Dinger gave Richards, frankly, and Richards hit it out of the park. Small fires become big fires. Come on. We're not, you know, and Rosenbaum is pushing a lit on fire dumpster down the street. Most people regard that as very dangerous behavior. And I thought Richard did a really good rejoinder to Binger minimizing the property damage. He made it seem like it was near misdemeanor property damage as opposed to arson, one of the most serious felonies there is. Why? Because it's very likely to get out of control and cause loss of people's homes and lives. And then finally, Richards took us through all of the video of the shootings of Huber and Grosskreutz. And again, I thought was very effective at 
dismissing or undermining the prosecution argument that, number one, Kyle Rittenhouse could have stood around in yep. the Car Source 3 lot and helped Joseph Rosenbaum without getting beat up. As he said, what they called scene two, where Huber and Grosskreutz were shot, would have just moved to scene one because everyone would have pounced on Rittenhouse as the shooter. And then his demonstration that Huber grabbed the gun and at one point, he even said Huber pulled the trigger without objection from the prosecution. I don't know if it was an intentional or unintentional slip. It put in the jurors' minds that essentially Huber pulled the gun on Rittenhouse's weapon. And then his deconstruction of Grosskreutz's step back and then forward as he thought he saw Rittenhouse lowering his weapon. I thought he was very effective at creating a narrative for that situation. He was, and he, he also put that squarely on Grosskreutz. He should, that Grosskreutz should have backed away. Grosskreutz should not have kept coming. You know, that yeah, was, was done and didn't pose any threat to anybody until he was threatened. Yeah, he did a good job. Look, frankly, about the prosecutor objecting, I, I was kind of stunned at a number of points where the prosecutor was silent. One of the ones was when he was talking about what was going on in Kenosha and how upsetting it was. It's about when he was talking about Hernandez, you know, who he said for some reason Binger didn't like Hernandez. Why? Because, you know, he was a citizen journalist and who had a right-wing perspective, you know, about what was happening in Kenosha, that it wasn't lawful demonstrating. It was rioting and destruction. And then Richards was allowed to say, frankly, I agree with that. You're not, you're not supposed to let a lawyer say, I agree with a witness or have any kind of personal opinion at all putting himself into the case. I don't know. I was stunned by a number of things. And I was, more importantly, frankly, was the failure to object to the characterization of Rosenbaum as just released from jail, as crazy, as dangerous. Now, you're allowed to argue, look at how angry his face is as portrayed in this video. That's perfectly fair argument. But the rest, I thought, had been litigated prior to trial. And, you know, there was supposed to be a more sanitized version of Rosenbaum. The last piece of Richard's survey of all the video was Kyle Rittenhouse walking towards the police with his hands in the air. Yes. And... Richard's making the point that the only people that Kyle Rittenhouse shot and shot at were people who attacked him. Right. And I thought it was very difficult to dismiss that. I think he did a really nice job. He used that photo very well, but that's a fabulous, powerful photo of a young person who was trying to do the right thing, who understood something terrible had happened. I thought he used that to good effect, and I thought he managed. It's not an easy argument. One of the only, you know, criticisms I have of the very last part of the closing was when Richard said something about it was a tough choice, or this is a tough choice. He used the word tough. He was given a little bit away there, and apparently more than he needed to in view of what the jury ultimately does here. But I thought he did a masterful job, frankly, of making three shootings be kind of understandable. That's the, that's the central challenge of this case for the defense, you know, their client killed two guys and seriously injured a third and could have killed more, and he managed to offer up an argument that made some sense, that he only did it because he had to. And he said he doesn't have to take a beating. 
That's not what the law says. The law allows a person who's in reasonable fear of serious bodily injury, and he even suggested that kicking and hitting, you know, that the use of arms and hands by the crowd was enough. He did a good job. He did not stumble over the unarmed, you know, nature of either Rosenbaum or Huber, except for the skateboard. And then that final piece was him pointing to the privilege of self-defense. And if the jury found that Rittenhouse legally afforded himself that privilege, then they couldn't consider lesser charges, cutting off the possibility that they would try to find him guilty of manslaughter or some lesser charge. That's a hard thing to argue, and I thought he did that pretty artfully, too, because you never want to say to a jury, look, he's absolutely, absolutely not guilty of this. But if you're considering this, then, you know, I'd like to argue, you don't want to kind of have it both ways. He sort of cut it off at the pass by saying if he has a right to self-defense, then he has a right to self-defense, period. End of story. Again, Abby, thank you for being with us this week, and I look forward to wrapping it all up next week. Thanks so much. Me too. Enjoy your vacation. Thanks, and you too. Okay, thank you. That brings to a close this weekly recap of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us next week as we conclude our coverage of the trial, including our examination of the prosecution's rebuttal, a mistrial hearing, some jurors' questions, and the reading of the jury's verdict. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our guest on this episode was professor of law at Georgetown University, Abby Smith. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. It was edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.